welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last lesson, we met Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, who was the first New Testament believer to be put to death for his testimony about Christ. Stephen was a man of courage who, in his last moments, focused on the Lord rather than on the violent crowd persecuting him. As they stoned him, he committed his spirit into the Lord's care, and following Christ's example, he asked God the Father to forgive his murderers and not hold their sin against them. Despite the horror of the moment, Dr. Luke describes his death as being so peaceful it was as if he had merely fallen asleep. We close the lesson with Luke's reference to a man who was standing nearby, holding the coats of those who cast the stones. It was obvious that this man approved of Stephen's murder, though he took no direct part in it. This was Saul, a committed Pharisee, a bright student of the famous Rabbi Gamaliel from Acts chapter 5, and soon to become one of the chief persecutors of Christians. In fact, we're told that from that very day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem that had Saul going from house house to house, dragging off men and women to put them in prison for their faith in Christ. This terrible ill-treatment of the believers in Jerusalem caused many of them to flee. And though the apostles courageously stayed in the city, the rest of the church was scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. One might think that surely this was a disaster for the followers of Christ, but far from being the tragic end of Christianity, it was all part of God's plan to spread the good news of Jesus. The events recorded in Acts 8 are of great importance in the life of the early church. Initially, the followers of Christ had all come from Jewish backgrounds. However, you will remember from Acts 1, before Jesus ascended into heaven, his last command to his followers was that once they were filled with his Holy Spirit, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we pick up our story in Acts chapter 8 verse 4, we see the beginnings of Christ's command being carried out. For those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. All of the displaced believers preached the good news about Jesus Christ wherever they went, but Luke focuses his account on what happened to Philip, one of seven deacons, a man who had served with Stephen in Jerusalem. 
As others spread out across Judea, Philip travelled to the neighbouring territory of Samaria. We'll talk about the significance of Samaria in a few moments. Apparently, this new audience was ready to hear the message of Christ that Philip brought because we're told that when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. Here we see again how God used miracles to confirm the truth of what Philip preached. And so many people were delivered and healed in Christ's name that there was great joy in that city. And it really is a beautiful picture of how the good news of Jesus Christ not only brings people the love of God, but brings them healing and joy as well. Look at verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed, Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. This man, Simon, apparently had made a comfortable living from sorcery for some time. People from all walks of life were amazed by what he was able to do by his dark arts. What I find particularly significant here is the way in which everything Simon did pointed to him. Notice he claimed that he was someone great and gladly accepted people's praise when they believed him to be the great power of God. By contrast, the disciples of Christ never did that. Rather, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, they were always quick to deflect the attention away from themselves. And accepting no praise for themselves, they always made sure people understood that what was being done was by God's power alone. Simon, however, had a great appetite for attention and admiration, and one can only imagine how he must have felt when Philip arrived in town with the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and cast out demonic spirits. As the crowd's attention began to shift to the newcomer, Simon surely realized that this would ultimately have a negative impact on his business. Many people were coming to Christ and we're told that even Simon believed and was baptized. One hopes that his motives were genuine, although from what Peter later says about him, that seems very unlikely. And many theologians believe that Simon merely decided to follow suit because if you can't beat them, maybe you should join them. Whatever the case, Luke tells us that Simon began to follow Philip everywhere because he was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. 
He was intrigued by the incredible miracles that God was doing through Philip. And as we shall soon see, Simon fell into the trap of covetousness, wanting to be able to do the same and also to make a lot of money doing it. News about what God was doing in Samaria began to spread. And in verse 14, we learn that when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Upon hearing that the Samaritans were turning to Christ, Peter and John were sent to Samaria to see the work of the Lord and also to be of assistance to Philip. Once there, they realized that the believers had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit, so the apostles placed their hands on them, as was the custom, and prayed for the Spirit's infilling. Simon was very impressed with the visible effects of the laying on of their hands, so much so that he wanted to buy the ability to do what the apostles could do. And that revealed Simon's two great errors. He was only interested in what the gifts of God could bring him personally. But more importantly, he didn't understand the nature of the gifts at all. He thought that they were for sale to the highest bidder. In doing this, Simon proved that in his heart, he was still very much a magician wanting to add another magic trick to his collection. And the Holy Spirit enabled Peter to immediately spot his problem. Look at verse 20. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Peter sharply rebuked him for thinking that he could buy the grace of God with money, and he plainly declared that Simon had no part or share in the ministry because his heart was not right before the Lord. Peter urged him to repent and to earnestly seek the Lord's forgiveness, observing that Simon was still full of bitterness and captive to sin. Some point to Simon's response then in verse 24 as being the final proof of his unbelief. It says, Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Once he had been caught in his sin and his real motives had been revealed, we're told that Simon, instead of asking for forgiveness himself, asks that Peter pray for him. 
We first need to note that God wants our relationship with him to be personal, not something that's done or maintained merely through the prayers of others. We have to acknowledge our sin and ask God for his mercy ourselves. But we should notice too what Simon asks Peter to pray for in verse 24. His request is that Peter pray so that nothing you have said may happen to me. It's still all about Simon, isn't it? All he seems to be interested in is avoiding the consequences of his actions. This is such a reminder that salvation is not just deliverance from the consequences of our sin, but it is the remaking of our hearts, a change in our very self something that had obviously not occurred to Simon. The story about the work God did in Samaria through Philip and then Peter and John is truly astonishing for a couple of reasons. First, because we know that traditionally people from Jewish backgrounds would have nothing to do with the Samaritan people. It's worth explaining why there was such animosity between the two groups. It stemmed back to the Old Testament time when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. Many of the Jewish people were displaced, but many remained in the land and ended up intermarrying with their captors. Their descendants became known as the Samaritans. Much later, the Jews living in the southern kingdom called Judah were also taken into captivity, but this time by the Babylonians. However, unlike their northern counterparts, they refused to lose their identity, remaining fiercely Jewish no matter what was done to them. Think here of Daniel and his three friends as an example. When they later returned to Jerusalem from Babylon, the, those of Judea refused to associate with the Samaritans, seeing them as cowardly traitors who had abandoned their Jewish heritage. The tension between the two groups continued, even to the time of Christ. Josephus, a Jewish historian of the first century, reported an incident that took place between AD 6 and AD 9. Perhaps the biggest disagreement between the two groups concerned where God should be worshipped. The Samaritans believed God should be worshipped on a mountain in their territory. And the Jews, of course, believed worship could only occur at the temple in Jerusalem. One night, the Samaritans gained access to the temple in Jerusalem and they scattered human bones on the porches and all through the sanctuary, defiling it and making worship there impossible. Josephus says that this terrible desecration actually interrupted the Passover that year and considerably raised the level of enmity between the two groups. 
However, the Jews had their own ways of showing animosity. They openly cursed Samaritans in their synagogues. They didn't allow Samaritan testimony in their courts of law, and they did not accept Samaritan converts, because in the eyes of the rabbis, no Samaritan could possibly inherit eternal life. But there is a second reason why Acts 8 is significant. This wasn't the first time Peter and John had been in Samaria. Jesus took them there, remember? And he had a conversation with a woman at a well in John chapter 4 that resulted in her salvation and the evangelization of the whole area through her testimony. And do you remember Jesus' words to his shocked disciples then? He told them to lift up their eyes that there was a harvest all around them just waiting to be brought in. And Acts 8 shows that harvest. These two factors may explain why, upon hearing that Samaria had accepted the word of God, Peter and John were sent to them from Jerusalem, not only to confirm what was happening, but also to lay hands on the Samaritan believers to unite the church as it began to span different ethnic groups. It was clear evidence that Christ is saviour for all of mankind, not just saviour for those from a Jewish background. He is our peace and he unites those in his body, the church, irrespective of their backgrounds or of their past hostility. What a time that must have been for Peter and John to see that earlier lesson bear fruit. But Peter, especially, wasn't finished learning all that that meant, as we'll see when we get to Acts chapter 10. And believe me, you won't want to miss that. But back into Acts chapter 8 here, verse 25 tells us that when they, Peter and John, had testified and preached the word of God, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Philip also had a wonderful ministry in Samaria, but even so, when God told him to go elsewhere, he was very quick to obey. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. The Lord sent Philip to a well-traveled road, which was the main route through the desert between Jerusalem and Egypt. Along his journey, he encountered an Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling by chariot, and Luke informs us that this man was an important treasury official who served the queen of the Ethiopians. 
In those days, the world was full of people who were tired of the many gods and the loose morals of the nations. They had turned to Judaism and there had found the one true God whose moral standards gave life meaning. This Ethiopian was one of those searchers and evidently he had some belief in Judaism because we're told that he had not only gone to Jerusalem to worship, but that now as he journeyed home, he was reading the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We learn much about the workings of the Holy Spirit through this section of text. For as the Ethiopian seeks a deeper understanding of God, the Holy Spirit brings Philip alongside him to help. God's Spirit guides God's servant to just the right person at just the right time. And I wonder how many of us ask God to lead us in just the same way. Do we ever pray at the start of our day, Dear Lord, please guide me today to speak to just the right person at just the right time? If we don't, perhaps we should. This also shows a truth from the Ethiopian's point of view, though, that God sends answers to those who truly search for him. As the Holy Spirit directs Philip to the chariot, he also opens up a window of opportunity in verse 30. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. As Philip recognized the familiar words of the prophet Isaiah, the Holy Spirit prompted him to ask a simple question as to whether or not the man really understood what he was reading about. I don't know about you, but I've often noticed that when God prompts us to ask the right question, it has the potential to change a person's life. And most of the time, it's a very simple question too. Guided by the Holy Spirit, Philip is given the perfect opportunity to speak to the man about Jesus because we're told in verse 32 that the eunuch was reading from this passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. There are certain things that become clear about this Ethiopian. Because he had come to worship God in Jerusalem, he would have obviously had an understanding of the Jewish way of worship and their use of animal sacrifices. He would have been familiar with the fact that the law allowed for an innocent lamb to die in the place of the guilty, to redeem their life in the sight of God, for it was something that happened at the temple daily. 
but he didn't understand what he was reading, so he asked Philip for an explanation. And using this very scripture from Isaiah, Philip began to preach Christ to the man. He told him how Jesus, when brought before his accusers, went willingly to his death without protest, and how Jesus, the innocent one, died on behalf of the guilty. We're not told that Philip knew the exact words that he was going to share with the man beforehand. All we know is the Holy Spirit gave Philip the right words to speak, and he will do the same for us too if we let him. It's also a good reminder that asking and answering questions is a very good way to talk about the Lord with those who are curious. Verse 36 as they travelled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptised? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptised him. Christ's command is that we make believers, baptize them, and teach them in the way that they should go. The only precondition for baptism is that a person believe. And having believed in Christ Jesus, there was really nothing to keep the Ethiopian from being baptized. The early Christians baptized by immersion, and wherever possible, it was done in running water. And it symbolized three things. It represented cleansing, for just as a person's body was cleansed by water, so too a person's soul was cleansed in the grace of Jesus Christ. It also represented union with Christ, for as the waters closed over a person's head, they died with Christ, and as they came up out of the water, they rose to new life with him. And it was also a mark of the believer's public identification with Jesus, for they would emerge from the water to a new way of living as one who belonged to Christ. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Notice that the Holy Spirit guided and took care of the eunuch from that point on. It was not necessary for Philip to remain with him. Philip's part in the man's story was complete. Tradition has it that this eunuch went home and evangelized Ethiopia, and though we do not know that for certain, we are told that he went on his way rejoicing. And so it's very hard to imagine that he would be able to keep this good news to himself. But what about Philip? Though we don't know how, the Lord suddenly took Philip away. We're told that he was taken to Azotus, which was a town a little further north along the Gaza road. And from there, he, like Peter and John, also preached in all the cities on his way home to Caesarea, where he lived. And, you know, when we meet up with him again in Acts 21, we will find him 
Julian, still living in Caesarea with his four daughters who had the gift of prophecy, and he was still preaching and still faithful. As we look at the story of how the church began to spread in Acts 8, we become keenly aware that it was the Holy Spirit who guided the spread of the gospel and who opened hearts to the truth about Jesus Christ. And you and I would do well to remember that. It is never about what we can do for God in our own strength. Rather, it's about joining him in the work that he is already doing. And ultimately, no matter how the Lord uses us in the process of bringing others into his kingdom, according to Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, we can be confident of this, that he who began the good work in them will carry it on to completion. Now, I hope you'll join me in our next lesson when we'll learn about Saul who became Paul and we see the power of God to transform even the hardest of hearts. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts through the testimony of Philip here in this section of Acts 8. Lord, I pray that like him, you would guide us to be directed to the right people. Lord, that we would be given the opportunity to ask the right questions and to be able to introduce scripture into our conversation with them in order to win them for Christ. But Lord, we know that it is the Holy Spirit who does the work, really, and that we get to join him in the work that he does. And so, Lord, we pray that we not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would work through us to the praise of Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at InTheWord.com.